It's a joy and privilege to worship God with you. Hey, this, uh, about 15 years ago, I kind of got enamored with something. I'm going to put my phone down so I don't get calls here. Just a second. Um, I got enamored with Everest. I got a picture of Everest here. Uh, I, I, I had read John Krakauer's book, uh, Into Thin Air. Anyone read that? Oh, wow. You got it. The, the second service is readers. Okay. So you'll, you'll know why I got a little bit enamored with it. Uh, the story of those that uh, want to get to the highest place. Hey, thank you very much. The story of those that want to get to the highest place on the planet. Uh, and um, just kind of in that story, also the tragedy that happens and lives are lost. And I was like, what is up with this? What, what it drives people? Like some of you are uh, 14 hikers, 14ers, all that stuff, and, and good on you. But that is nothing. That's, that's literally like half the height of uh, Mount Everest. And so uh, I just fascinated with uh, all, all the, the base camps and going up and getting acclimated for a few days and coming back. And so, so that, that caused me to read some other books about Everest, some of the history of it. And then I uh, went and checked out from the library several documentaries about Everest. And um, when you study it, you're just like, man, this is amazing. Well, as you get to the near the top, there's a, there's a false summit you can see here. Uh, if you were close enough, you could see a, a couple hikers on it. And then there's the summit summit. Summit. But to get to the Summit Summit, which is really, there's a, a window of opportunity every year, about 10 days in May. That's the only time, uh, at least from the Nepal side, that you can get to the Summit. And, uh, but before you do that, you have to go up something called the Hillary Step. Um, in fact, it's not there anymore. As of 2015, uh, there was an earthquake and it changed the whole dynamic of that. But before that, uh, it was this 40-foot uh, kind of wall. It was the most technical part of the entire climb of Everest. It's very narrow, as you can see. Uh, they're, they're, they're right about at the Hillary step at this point. Um, and and uh, if you ever see the news around May when they talk about like uh, people died on Everest, it's usually right here. Uh, this is called the, the, the death zone, uh, death zone for, for, for many reasons. Uh, one, because of hypoxia and the altitude and lack of oxygen, all, all these reasons, but also because uh, at this point, it's very narrow. It's a one-way thing. So like if people are coming up, they're all coming up. If they're coming down, they're all coming down. And, and sometimes the weather can shift very quickly and all of a sudden it just becomes this like gridlock and people die. There. So I'm like, and if you watch some of the documentaries, um, they can be kind of brutal because you'll just see bodies to left and right, the hanging off the rope. And you're like, oh my gosh. Not only that, as you can see in the picture, if you were to fall off to the right side, you're, you're going to go 8,000 feet down. If you fall off to the left side, you're going to go 10,000 feet down there. So, so, the, so the stakes are very, very high. And now, now why, do, why do I say that? What does this have to do with Luke chapter 6? What, what I think it has to do with Luke chapter 6, in our passage in particular, um, Jesus is transitioning now, and he's going to bring the message of the kingdom of God. And to introduce that, he, he's going to uh, talk about what we just read together, where we stood up, uh, and, and as we go up this, I think the stakes are very, very high. And it's very easy in a passage like this to, to, to fall off on, on one side or the other. On one side or the other. So, for example, on a passage like Luke chapter 6, um, you, you could come to it, and, and if you can imagine a scenario where all we had in, in the New Testament was a scrap, a parchment of Luke chapter 6, if that's all we had, you could come to the conclusion like, wow, okay, it looks like salvation belongs only to the poor, and in fact, 
through the poor. It's, it's, it's for the poor. And, and in fact, some, some have taken passages like Luke 6 and others and have developed a theology that's called liberation theology out of it. And, and they're very uh, focused on that. Uh, I had a friend here. Uh, she she was, used to be a, a part of a church and ministries that kind of uh, embraced this. And they, they did amazing work and good work in their city for the poor. Uh, and she went to uh, go with a ministry, a discipleship training school for a year down in South America where they would uh, study about the things of God and then they would um, serve the poor. And in this context, in this ministry context, they were told, we're going to study the Bible for the year, but you're only allowed, this should be a red flag, you're only allowed to read the Gospel of Luke. That's all you're allowed to read. And uh, when you start to think about what, what's going on in Luke and uh, compared to the other gospels, Luke does about twice as often focus on God's heart for the poor. And so uh, she said that's what she did. And then they moved back. She moved back to California, moved to a very poor part of Oakland and did ministry and work around there and, uh, and, and, and did great work. But, but, but as she started to wake up, like, man, this doesn't, this doesn't seem quite right. She, she thought about moving away, and she says in, that, in the thinking about moving away and, and going away from her church community and, and really the, the poverty community, she had a very real sense, and I don't know if others told, told her this, but she felt like to leave that geographic area was to, be leave, was to leave her salvation. It was kind of crazy. Like, that, that, that's pretty intense, right? Now, that, that, that's certainly one, one way that we could fall off the side of the cliff in coming to a passage like this. Just kind of be like, this is everything. Now, but, but given where we are and who we are and when we are, that's probably not the side of the cliff that's the danger for us. That's probably not where we're going to fall off and, and go astray. Where we might be more tempted or, or the danger more for us is to come to a passage like this and immediately say, yeah, but. but. What about? Well, let's look at the other parts of the scripture first. Let's explain this away. That's too convicting. Let's move on. That's, that's, that's what our temptation is. And to do, to do that is to fall off the other side and to miss what Jesus has to say for you and for me about the kingdom of God. Jesus has some tremendously good news for us. Regardless of where you're at this morning, he's got some tremendously good news, but it's going to take some tension. It's going to take some sitting in that for a while and, and wrestling with and asking some questions of ourselves and, and, and what we think about what, what Jesus is saying here before it can dawn on us and land on us in the good way that he has for us. So the challenge of Jesus, though, is that he isn't just another religious leader that has come on the scene to kind of add his two cents on, on religious wisdom. No, no, no. Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to improve your life marginally with a, a couple little proverbs here and there. No, he came to wreck the whole system. He came to replace the whole thing. He came to bring a new king and a new kingdom. And his king and kingdom, what we often talk about, is an upside-down kingdom. I mean, you've heard that before. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. But no, nowhere in Scripture is it more clear that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom than Luke chapter 6. You know, the brain is an amazing thing. It, it, can, it, it can adjust, and it's very malleable. Uh, one of the amazing things is, is the 
the correlation between the brain and your eye. You know, when the image comes into your eye, hits the cornea, goes and hits the back of your eye, there's some photosensitive uh, uh, nerves there that then take that image that has been flipped upside down, because it comes through the cornea, flips upside down, lands on the back of your eye upside down, but your brain will take that and rework that so that everything's right side up. And this seems normal to us. But did you know that scientists have, have uh, done these studies where they then give, uh, they give people glasses that flip everything upside down? So that when you put it on, the image comes in, uh, it gets flipped, it goes through your eye, gets flipped again so that it hits the back of your eye right side up. And at first, it's very disorienting. Imagine trying to walk through your day or everything's upside down. But it doesn't take long for your brain to begin to adjust that. A couple days. In a couple days, everything's right side up with these glasses on. You take them off, and you're like, oh, you're disoriented again. It's going to take a couple days to get back. Your brain is malleable about that. What Jesus is saying here is, what you think is reality is not really reality. What, what you've been taught, what you've valued, what you've pursued, actually isn't where it's at. But, 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 but again, it's hard for us because that's all we've known. That's how we've lived. That's where we've been at. I mean, is this really true? Blessed are the, when did blessings get associated with being poor and hungry and rejected? And um, I mean, what else does he say? I'm missing one of those. Oh, laughing or, or weeping rather. When, when did that become a source of blessing? And when Jesus says, blessed are, the word is in Greek, makarios, and in ancient classical Greek, makarios, blessed, is only and always associated with the upper caste. Not the the lowly, not the slaves, not the the poor and the oppressed. It's always the the upper caste. They're they're the blessed ones. So to put it in kind of a modern day vernacular, think of like these these social media influencers, the beautiful people, perfectly tanned skin, traveling everywhere. That they put their posts with their nicely curated social media pages, and, and they, they say things like, The sunrise over Monaco today was beautiful. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> and we look at where they're like, oh, They got a point. That looks pretty amazing. I'd like to be able to do that. That'd be cool to have that kind of money. Uh, look at the food that they get to enjoy. Look at all the, and we're like, Okay, that makes sense. But what Jesus says, No, 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 no. It actually goes. The other way. And you're like, say what? What do you mean the other way? He's like, yeah, in case it wasn't clear, he says, woe to those. Well, when did woes come to those that are rich and, and well-fed and well-liked and uh, ha- have an uh, enjoyable, laughing kind of life? When was that a woe? Jesus, this seems radically upside down. And Jesus like, yes. This doesn't make any sense to us. This is a hard passage. There's a reason why we want to be like, oh, let's move on. What is that? Like, this is not how the world works, Jesus. Like, no one's writing that story. It all goes one direction. It goes from uh, the down and out to work their way up to these things. But no, Jesus says it goes the other way. Like, Jesus, no one's writing the story. He was born a billionaire, and then he he died uh, bankrupt and alone. Selah. Like, no one's watching that movie. No one's reading that book, but Jesus says, oh, you should. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You're like, okay, something's strange here. What's going on? So let's, let's jump in and see what's going on. Look at verse 17. It says, he went down with them and stood on a level place. So you might be thinking, 
And one of the temptations with this passage is, hey, these are Beatitudes. I know there's Beatitudes somewhere else. In Matthew's gospel, there's Beatitudes. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, in the Beatitudes, he gives some clarifying thoughts that make a little bit more sense to us, at least. But but on Matthew's gospel, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke's very clear to say, no, this is a Sermon on the Plain. So, so before we get to Matthew's gospel, like a Venn diagram, there is overlap, but there is a difference, and the difference matters. There's a difference for the region, for a reason. Jesus has now transitioned from this kind of uh, conflict with the, the, the religious elite, the wealthy, the powerful of his society. We saw that over the last several weeks with the Pharisees, and now he's turning his attention to the poor. The oppressed, the down and out. This is what it says. He went down with them, stood on a level place, a large crowd of his disciples. So that not just the 12, but, but, but a large crowd of people that would identify themselves as followers of Jesus at this point was there. And a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. So, so this is a, it's just a ethnically diverse people. Probably some Gentiles there. These are people from Jerusalem and Judea and all around. But what we know about that time and place historically, the vast, vast, vast majority of those people, we would easily identify as poor and oppressed. They're oppressed by the Romans. They're oppressed by their own countrymen. They, they don't have much. They're, they're just barely getting by. They've heard about Jesus. Something about his message and his life has attracted to them. And so the crowds are, are coming out to them. And it says, um, they came who had, who had come to hear him. So they hear about the gospel and to be healed of their diseases. So they experience his healing power. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. So demon possessed people were delivered and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And that this is the setup for what Jesus is about to say. Now, Again, we struggle with this, but I want you to first put your mind in that of a poor, oppressed person. This would have landed as incredibly good news. This would be great news. People who the world has forgotten, people who the world has oppressed, people who just seems like are barely trying to get by. And Jesus says, hey, you're actually blessed. How are we blessed, Jesus? He says, blessed are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor. Throughout the Bible, especially in the prophets and in the gospel of Luke, and we see this in the book of Acts, um, one of my seminary professors described it as God's preferential treatment of the poor. And it isn't that God prefers the poor. It's just that, that there is something to being poor, to, to being at the bottom that causes people to look up and to cry out in faith to God. Where the opposite isn't true. We'll get to that in a minute. But he says, blessed are the poor. These are the kind of people that understand like what, what Tim Keller says when he says, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. He says, there is a kind of blessing to your poverty because it positions you well to come to God by grace alone, through faith alone. So, so they are blessed. Um, when, when I lived in Okinawa, we used to take teams from our church uh, on different trips. And we called it a worldview immersion trip. We wanted to expand their worldview of what, what God has done in the world. And, um, so 
They weren't mission trips because we didn't want to conflate the two. We just wanted people to think broader. And so uh, we would go to Cambodia. If you know anything about the history of Cambodia in the 1970s, uh, when I was two years old, uh, the Khmer Rouge took over there, murdered two million of their own people in, in the Cambodian killing field. So, so we read books about the problem of evil and pain and suffering. We read books about the history of Cambodia. Then we read books about missions and all these things and, and the poor and the oppressed. And then, then we, we traveled over there. And um, I remember going to this uh, village out in, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the government had built the, these little kind of uh, brick houses for each family. Think about the size of your walk-in closet probably for, for entire families. And said, here you go. And you're like, oh, that was very nice of the government. No, it was very corrupt of the government. The government had taken this, these people, I think there was maybe about 500 of them, these people whose history and lineage and job and all that was tied to fishing on the river, that's where they lived, they displaced them and moved them 20 miles inland and sat them down and said, good luck. This is what, what systemic injustice looks like in Cambodia. Good luck. Here you go. I remember there was a, a Christian Cambodian pastor there and he was uh, taking us around and showing us there. And I'm like, man, this is a level of poverty I, I have not seen. And then he, he points onto the horizon. Uh, you could see in the distance a, a factory. And he says, oh, that factory, that's an answer to prayer. I was like, oh yeah, why's that? And he began to explain, what he began to explain was that a Chinese company had come and built a textile factory. You and I would call it a sweatshop. We would deplore the conditions of that place. And for him, he's like, it's an answer to prayer. They have something to do. They they get some clothes and just just enough money to have a little bit of food to feed their family every day. It's an answer to prayer. I mean, who of us would would say working in a sweatshop is an answer to prayer? They did. They had a different kind of perspective on the kingdom of God. So when, when Jesus, when they hear about this and Jesus says, blessed are you, they're like, yes, we're longing for something more than this place. And then we went to another place. We, we had some ministry amongst the Cambodian military, actually. And we got, went out to their base and the men were off training for the day. And, and I remember sitting in the dirt because there was no, nowhere else to sit, sitting in the dirt, sitting with the wives and the mothers with their little kids rolling around in the dirt. And, and I got to teach them from the Bible about the kingdom of God. And they were receptive to it. Like, really? There's more to this? Do you see how the, these words from Jesus would have landed as incredibly good news? Blessed are the poor. He goes on. Blessed are you who are hunger now, for you will be satisfied. When Jesus speaks as one who speaks with authority, he's not just hoping and praying and wishing this were true. He controls their destiny. He knows, hey, a day is coming where you will have endless feasting with God in the kingdom of God. So you're actually blessed if your hunger now causes in you a a longing for something more than this earth has to offer you. You're blessed. Jesus will tell these disciples at one point how to pray. Remember that line? We pray it. Give us this day our daily bread. But we've never meant it. Right? Have you ever meant it? Have you ever been like, Lord, if you don't provide my food today, I don't know if I'm going to make it. They mean it. They meant it. My Cambodian friends meant it. And so when, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry, hey, you have all of eternity to feast with me. 
and the kingdom. I set the course of reality. This is a blessing. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Well, why is it a blessing to weep now? Again, twofold. Uh, if the brokenness of this world, and this world is broken, it's crying out for redemption. If you've experienced the worst of this world, you can't help but to long for and reach for and pray for and lean into in faith God to come make the world right. Jesus says, I'm going to do that. But also, there's a spiritual d- dynamic. If you really are woke, uh, uh, have been awoken to the holiness and righteousness uh, of God and you see your own sin, uh, that there is a brokenness that causes weeping that leads to rejoicing forever. It's repentance. You don't enter the kingdom of God without some weeping first. And he says, blessed are you who weep. For you will laugh. And then he says, blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. I mean, come on. We, no, no one wants to be hated. And more than that, no one wants to be excluded, right? That, that's, that's, that's hard. Like you, you see your family post pictures from their vacation and all, everyone's on there but you. And you're like, what? I'm just back. Like what happened? Like you're excluded? Now Jesus says, hey, when the world turns its back on you, that's a good sign that you're living for a different world. You're blessed. He says, but to be, to be clear, to clarify, it's because of the Son of Man. Some, some people are like, oh, I, I must be blessed because no one likes me. Now, that might be just because you're a jerk. <laughs> He's saying very specifically, because you follow Jesus and you live for a different kingdom, if they hate you, you're blessed. And again, think about who he's saying this to. Many of the people that he's saying this to will experience the hatred of the world and will die because they're living for a different kingdom. This was the norm for the first hearers of this passage and for the first 400 years uh, of Christianity to be persecuted because we live for a different world and, and really throughout the world today, outside of the West, this is what Christians feel. And so they come to Luke chapter 6 and they're like, this is incredibly good news. And, and they, they feel it when he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. The, the word leap is like when you, see, when you see the little calves come out of the barn in Switzerland after the end of winter and they, they come into the spring and they're leaping. It's like, this is what Christians should be like. Leap for joy. You're persecuted. The world hates you. <laughs> leap for joy because your, great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So, so for, for the vast majority of world history, Christian history, this is good news. But it doesn't quite feel like good news to us. <laughs> well, he's got some woes. Again, Jesus understands reality. These woes are not, um, not prophecies, they're warnings. It's like if there's a burning building and you see people about to go in the building and you say, don't go in there. You're not being mean. You're being loving. You're loving these people as best as possible. You're stopping them. Don't go down that path. Death and destruction await. And so he's got some woes. He says, let woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. There, there is just something, a narcotic effect to wealth that numbs you to eternal things. If you've got all that you need, if you're living 
the world's definition of a good life, it's just really, really hard to think, ah, but it could be better, right? If, if things are going well, there, there's just not the, the impulse to be like, Lord, have mercy, deliver me from this. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go hungry. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't missed many meals ever. <laughs> ever. He says, you'll go hungry. He's saying, listen, if you're so satiated by the things of this world, you're never going to have a hunger pang for eternal things. And that will be all you have. Woe to you who laugh now. I mean, surely that can't be bad. Laugh now for you will mourn. Well, well that word for laugh is, is the laughter of the prideful. The, the full of the, the arrogant, the ones who lord it over the poor and the oppressed, the ones who think that they're in control. He says, that kind of laughter is coming to an end. And you will mourn and weep. You know, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable, and it's unlike any of other of his parables. He names someone in there, and he doesn't name the other person. It's the rich man and Lazarus. Why isn't the rich man named? Why? Because his whole life, we see in the parable, his whole life, his identity was tied to his wealth. And so that's all he was. You are the rich man. And now you're a poor man. What Jesus is warning is, if your identity is tied to uh, your wealth or what your wealth can provide, status, comfort, security, or, or how you satisfy yourselves on this earth, or, or uh, just the approval of men, if your identity is tied to that and is only in that, then woe. That's not going to be enough. Woe to you. He says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The false prophets were wildly popular. I mean, they they outnumbered God's true prophets by the hundreds in the Old Testament. Like they, they, what, what they would do is they would, they would look and they would just say, Hey, God's just, God's so good. He's just, he's just going to bless you. He's going to give us victory over enemies. Oh, don't listen to these other guys. Don't, don't worry. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's not going to, and, and, and they like to hear that. And they'd be like, yeah, tell us more. And then God would raise up a real prophet and be like, no, you need to repent. You need to turn to God and be like, no, we don't like to hear that. They, they would put them to death. It's a, it's a modern day equivalent of uh, churches that are like, hey, you can have your best life now and forever. I mean, that's a message that I'll preach. That's a message that will build churches because people like to hear that. Like, those churches are not preaching Luke chapter 6. People don't like, I don't like to preach this passage. But I, what I like more is to be true to God's word and to, to honor his word because he says there are eternal implications here. So, so we would do well. We would do well to understand what's going on here. Uh, sometimes when I'm studying the passage, I try to boil it down to a word or a, a phrase just to say, what, what is actually happening here in this? And I wrote this this week. This might be helpful, may not. But I wrote this. Only those willing to turn their back on the kingdom of this world will be in a position to enter the kingdom of God and its eternal blessings. Like, could you say, if all those things were stripped from my life, if all my wealth, all my comfort, all my security, all my affirmation from other people, all my, my, my earthly joy, if that was taken away, would Jesus 
still be enough? More than enough? Or do you find your identity in there? Or do you still have to have that for life to be meaningful for you? If so, Jesus says, be careful. Eternity is at stake here. And this, this message, while uh, crystal clear in Luke 6, is not a new message. This is throughout the Bible. The prophets talked about this all the time. Jesus will go on and say, what is a profit for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's like we, we need an eternal, bless you, we need an eternal perspective. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who by earthly standards in his culture, in his time, before meeting the Lord Jesus, had success, was well-liked, had some financial means, didn't miss any meals. He, he was doing pretty good until Jesus knocked him off his horse one day and called him to himself into a different kingdom. It radically shifted the way Paul saw his whole life. Here's how he, towards the end of his life, how he kind of summed it up in, in the book of Philippians. As he's in prison for his faith, he's experiencing the, what Jesus said, hey, that's when you should leap for joy. He's experiencing it now. And that's why the, the book of Philippians, though he's in prison about to die, is known as the book of joy. More, the word joy is used more in Philippians than any other book per, cap, per capita, per word. He says this in Philippians. Starts off in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's upside down, right? That's an upside down kind of perspective. He'll go on in chapter 3. He'll say, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Imagine coming to a place in maturity in your faith where, where, where the, the best of this world, you're like, that's garbage. Let me tell you about the kingdom of God and actually living like that. This, this, is, this is not unique to Luke chapter 6. But we would do well, we would do well to see where we're at personally in this whole spectrum. And Again, I, I don't know everyone's circumstance and situation, but I'll say this. You're the rich. You're looking at the rich. We're the rich. Now, when we, when we think that, most of us are like, nah, not me. Why? Because it's a moving target all the time, right? Uh, someone came up to me at, between services and they said they, a quote, of, see if I can remember it. The, the, the gap between enough and more will never be closed. The gap between enough, I have enough, and I need more, will never be closed. There's this always, a, well, I could get more. Then I would be rich. And it doesn't really matter where you're at currently on the socioeconomic spectrum. Study after study shows people, by and large, they think if they just had double what they had now, they would be rich. So if you ask someone who's making $40,000 a year on a survey, what do you need to make to feel rich? 80000 Asking someone that makes 80000 what do you need to feel rich? 160000 That's what they would answer. Uh, the publishers of Money Magazine did a survey of their subscribers once, and they said, in terms of net worth, what would you need uh, in net worth to feel rich? You know what their answer was? $5 million. If I had $5 million in, in net assets, then I would feel rich. You know what their average net worth is of a subscriber to Money Magazine? You guessed it, $2.5 million. It's always a moving target. So, so here's the deal. By and large, we're bad at being rich. And now we know 
that, that all things come from God. And, and Jesus, in, in the coming chapters, is going to help us understand he, his desire for us, for you and for me, who are rich, is not to uh, just throw them all away. His desire for us is to be good at being rich. The, 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 the kind of imagery that he'll use is stewards. His desire for us is to understand that we are stewards of God's resources, not owners. And when you understand that you're rich, that's the first thing you can say, okay, what does it look like to be good at being rich, right? So you have to first acknowledge that you are. And we're not very good at it. We think, oh, no, that's for other people. And, and, and one of the reasons we don't feel rich is because whatever amount we have, we tend to just maximize our life to that or maybe past that. Well, I'm not rich. I'm in debt. You know, I got, the, yeah, I got an iPhone 16, but th- that's besides the point. I, I, you know, like we just maximize our lifestyle. So we never feel rich. Jesus says, I want you to be good at being rich. What Jesus is and and is not saying. He is not saying we should pursue poverty, hunger, sorrow, and rejection. That's that's not what this passage teaches. He's saying if you have those things, you might be better better positioned to hear, but that's not something that we necessarily just pursue. What he is saying is that we need to examine and recalibrate our relationship with our stuff in the world. Does he ever take some time to examine and recalibrate? I mean, money is a weird, th- weird thing for us. Like, I can get extremely creative in, in building my wealth or getting what I want. And Jesus says, do you do the same thing for the kingdom of God? Like, are you moving stuff around? Are you making sacrifices here? Are you, are you doing that to advance the kingdom? That's what it would look like to be good at being rich. And Jesus had some people, while the vast majority of, of his disciples would be in the poor category, there, there were some that were very good in his circles at being rich. We read about it in the book of Luke. There's a group of women who are good at being rich. They undergird and support financially Jesus and his 12 disciples for three years. Think about the kind of resources and wealth that that would have. But they saw, hey, hey, we want to advance the kingdom. We'll support you. You guys go out. You learn. You minister. You do all that. God has given us a lot. We're going to be good at being rich. Here you go. We see this uh, in some of the Pharisees even. Even though the majority of the Pharisees rejected Jesus, some of them didn't. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they were rich. And they were good. They came to a place in their discipleship where they were good at being rich. So that when Jesus' body was dead on the cross, they, they asked if they could take it down. And they took him down. And, and, and at their own cost, which would be tens of thousands of dollars, they bought the materials and the, 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 the aloes and the myrrh and, and the packing stuff. And they wrapped his body very carefully. And then Joseph of Arimathea, who was rich, he said, I have a private tomb. It's a beautiful tomb. You can, we can lay Jesus' body there. They were good at being rich. You roll over from Luke to the book of Acts and you see that, that again, the majority of the church is poor and oppressed, but, but God does bring in some rich people and they're good at being rich. You, you see uh, Barnabas who is like, hey, I've got all this land and all this property, but, but I want to be about the mission of God. And he says, I'm going to sell it all and, and I'm going to give it to the leaders. They're going to advance the kingdom of God. And, and will you send me out as a missionary? And they're like, yeah. Thank you for your gift. Now go with the Apostle Paul and advance the gospel around the region. I mean, history is full of people who understand that this world is not all there is. And yet God has entrusted them with a lot and they learn to be good at being rich. So the first thing is we've got to acknowledge we're rich. 
Second thing Jesus wants to teach us in the coming weeks is how do we be good at it? How do we honor him with that? But I want to close with a point here. So Jesus not only preaches this, he practices what he preaches. I I think the key to this is in verse 19. It says, And all the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. We see this elsewhere in the gospel. People reach out and touch Jesus and he's like, Hey, power left me. This is the mission of Jesus. He who is the king of glory left his throne in glory, left his riches, left his honor, left his, his praise, left all of that. And what did he do? He lives out what he just said is blessed. Though he was rich, he became poor. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Well, what about the other ones? Jesus experiences hunger and thirst on the cross. Why? So that we might feast with him forever in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who hunger. Jesus, who is the king of glory, becomes the man of sorrows in his life. So that one day we will, he will wipe away every tear. And we will enter into the eternal bliss of the kingdom of God forever. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus on the cross would be rejected and despised by the world so that one day you and I would be welcomed as sons and daughters of the king in his kingdom. Amen? May that resonate in our hearts and minds. Let me pray for us to that end this morning. Father, we come before you now in the name of your son and in the power of your spirit. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of it. Jesus, I pray that you would help us wherever we're at on that spectrum to receive the good news. Lord, where we have put our faith and hope and trust in identity, in our stuff, our comfort, our security, Lord, help us to learn what it means to repent of that and to live for you and for your kingdom. Lord, where we uh, have lived for the applause of men. And it's caused us to keep our mouths shut when we talk about the kingdom. I pray this week that you would loose our mouths, that we might proclaim the excellencies of of him who called us out of darkness into your light. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't just tell us, you live this for us so that we might be welcomed into your kingdom forever and ever and ever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.